You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. So we will be continuing our series on the book of Genesis, and we are looking at the, the story of Joseph and his brothers. Um, and I feel like, particularly for um, this uh, series, or this, this topic in the series on forgiveness, I felt like it's quite important to look back a few years before Joseph's life. So the, the topic of today's sermon is costly forgiveness. And as I said, it will be, it will be useful for us to understand the context of Joseph's story. Because if we go back a few years before, um, probably 20, 30 years before Joseph came into the scene, then we will better understand why Joseph and his brothers and Jacob went through the journey they went through. So when Jacob was a young man, he left his father's house. He ran for his life because he just deceived his brother and stolen his brother's birthright. And so he went to safety to his uncle's house. His uncle was called Laban. His uncle had two daughters. And Jacob fell in love with the younger daughter because back in, the, in those days, people actually married their cousins. So just understand that context of cousin marriage and, and, and that. That was what was done back in those days. And so Jacob saw Rachel, who was Laban's youngest daughter, and he fell in love with her. And he approached Laban and said, I want to marry your daughter. And Laban said, that's fine. All you have to do, because you don't have any wealth, you've got no assets to your name, all I want you to do is work for me for seven years. And Jacob said, that's fine. And so Jacob worked with Laban faithfully for seven years. And after seven years, he went to Laban and says, you know, please give me your daughter to marry. And so they threw a massive wedding feast and um, a large party for this union. And as in those days, the women were veiled and covered, and, and at the end of the, the wedding ceremony, the, the bride would be taken to the tent of the groom. And then in the morning, Jacob sees that he wasn't married to Rachel. It was Leah he was married to. And he was, it was, as you can imagine, slightly upset that it's... it's father-in-law had cheated him and deceived him. And, and Laban said, oh, I'm sorry about that. I forgot to tell you. In, in our custom, we marry the older first before the younger. And he says, you know what? If you really want my daughter, work for me for another seven years, and then she'll be yours. And so Jacob worked for 14 years to marry the woman that he loved. Now, we have men in the room, um, some who were married, and some of who are sat next to their lovely wives. And if I was to ask any of them now, would you work for 14 years to marry your wife? Yes. I can see some going, yes. Yes. Right? 15. Up the ante. So, you know, you can tell which one are sat next to their wife because those are the ones that are the loudest. But... Although we profess our undying love for our spouses, you can understand how cheated Jacob felt when he was treated away, or how he was treated the way he was treated by Laban. 
even though he loved Rachel. That wasn't the deal he had. And so he despised his father-in-law and Leah for coming together to deceive him. And if you understand this, you, you will understand the story of Jacob's life in terms of how he treated his children. You see, Rachel was the woman that he wanted to marry. She was technically for him and to him his first wife. She was his true love. And so her child, her first child, would have been his first child. You see, when Jacob treated Leah harshly and he despised her, God saw this and God blessed Leah. And so how Leah was just shunned by Jacob. And God gave Leah many children, but he didn't give Rachel children. And then later on, God had mercy on Rachel. And then he gave her her first child, Joseph. And Jacob was ecstatic. This now is my first child, if things went the way I planned it to be. And so he treated Joseph as the child of the favorite wife, the first child, the one that had the father's love and the father's blessings. And it became very obvious to the other brothers who the first class child is and who the second class children are. And this set the tone for the rivalry between Joseph and his brother, for the enmity, the civil war in the house of Jacob. And it came from a heart of unforgiveness, which bore the fruit of bitterness. And so we come to our scripture reading this morning, which is Genesis 42, 20 to 22. But before this, we, we've gone through the breadth and the length of Joseph's life, and we've seen how he was sold to slavery by his brother, sold to the house of Potiphar, and then taken to prison. And then from prison, he came out and interpreted a dream for Pharaoh. And from there, he, he was transported to the second highest ranking leader in the entire land of Egypt. And he provided a, a plan for the Egyptians, a plan that would save them from the coming famine that was going to ravage the land. This famine was so dire, it was so terrible that people from the Mediterranean area came to the land of Egypt to buy grain. And this affected the land of Canaan, where Joseph's brother and Jacob was living. And so they were sent to Egypt because that was the only place you could find grain in the area. Go get grain from Egypt, bring it back. Buy grain, bring it back. And so they went to Egypt, and they met their brother, although they didn't recognize him because they thought he'd be dead now at most, or at worst, or a slave somewhere not the second highest ruler in the entire land of Egypt. And so Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. And to carry this ruse out, he spoke through an interpreter to make it more convincing. And then he started playing these games with them and saying, I don't trust you. You men are spies. You've come to see our land and spot the defenses, the weakness in our defenses, and you've come to take over our land. And they said, no, 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 we're, we're truly honest people. You know, we, you know, we're, you know, 12 brothers, but one of them has died, and, you know, we've got a father, and this. And he said, no, 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 no. And, and he said, I don't trust you. And then he throws them in jail. And afterwards, he says, okay, this is how I'll know you're telling the truth. Go back, bring your youngest brother, who, by the way, was the second child of Rachel, Benjamin, bring him back, bring him to me, and I'll see that your story adds up, and then I'll confirm that you're not spies. And that's where we get to the story in Genesis 42. And Joseph says to them, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. 
and they did so. And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But he did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. And then he turned away from them and wept. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word, because your word is life, and in your word is truth. I just pray, oh God, that you would help us to see the truth today, and that you'll convince us of the truth, and you'll convict us to act upon the truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. And so we see Joseph confront his brother, and in this passage, Reuben, the elder son, says, we're paying for our sins. This challenge that we're going through right now is because of what we did to our brother. And he describes it here because we never actually hear the voice of Joseph when he was being sold into slavery by his brother. But he describes it here. He says, we saw the distress of his soul and he begged us and we did not listen. Because what Joseph first heard was his own brother's plotting, how are we going to kill him? And then they changed their mind and said, okay, we're going to sell him to a place far away from his loved ones, from his precious father, his brother, from everyone. We will sell him as far as possible. And he begged them, tears running from his eyes, snot dripping from his nose. He was on his knees pleading for his life, pleading, have mercy on me. And as Reuben recounted and, and recollected and said these things, Joseph was transported back to that place where he was so many years ago. And he couldn't help himself. He, he had to leave the room and he wept. And how often do we find that in our lives, it's people that are closest to us that hurt us the most? Or not so much hurt us the most, that, that seem to have the greatest ability to hurt us deeply. Perhaps it's because they are people that we expose ourselves to. We, we are most vulnerable to those people. Our, our parents, our fathers, our mothers, our own siblings, uncles and aunties. People that should have our best interest in mind. We might excuse a complete stranger who declares himself an enemy. Well, they're supposed to be our enemy, so that's what enemies do, hurts their opponents. But not your own blood, not your own family, not your own loved one. And so it makes the pain of the offense even harder to get over. But for the purpose of this sermon, we're going to focus on the whys of forgiveness. Why should we forgive? There is a how we forgive, and that is good, and there is a place for that. But sometimes I feel like if you do not get the right motivation for why you do a thing, then you make a hash of the how. In fact, the how you forgive becomes hollow and empty without getting to the heart of why we should forgive. And so that's where I'm going to sort of perch um, and I'm going to focus on for the duration of this sermon. So there are three main reasons that I've, I've come to as to why we should forgive. And the first main reason is that our lives depend on it. Christ says in Matthew 6, 14 to 15, this is after the Lord's Prayer. He says in verses 14, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. 
And so if we go through the Lord's Prayer, our Father, who art in heaven, your name is great, your kingdom come, your will be done, you know, give us daily bread, um, do all these things, Lord, just have your way, you know, be great, you're wonderful, give us what we need. And then he gets to the point of forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the only point in the prayer where there's an action on us. It's not just saying, God, forgive us, and then walks away. It says, forgive us as we forgive others. And Christ says here, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I love the faith, the Christian faith. And one of the things I love about it is because there is liberty in it. There's freedom in it. We don't always have to look or sound the same way to come to the Father. I love that about the faith. You don't have to worship God with um, acoustic guitar. If you just want to sing, he'll accept that. You don't have to dress in suit and tie to preach on a Sunday. But if you preach with suit and tie on a Sunday, he, he loves that. I love that about the faith. But on the issue of forgiveness, this isn't optional. There is no leeway, no freedom, no caveat here. There is no wiggle room that the best lawyers in the world can find for you here. If you forgive others, you will be forgiven. If you don't forgive others, you will not be forgiven. What does that mean? That means you can't enter into the kingdom of God holding on to unforgiveness. It's impossible. You might say, well, if we go through the Ten Commandments, it never says anywhere that thou shalt forgive. You've got me there. It doesn't. But what does Christ say when he was told? What is the greatest commandment? First, he summarized as, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, every fiber of your being. Love God with that. And then love your neighbor as yourself. What do we understand love to be? 1 Corinthians 13.5 says, love keeps no record of wrong. That's what we define love as. That is, love does not act vengefully upon previous offense people have done to you. That's what it means to keep no record of wrong. It doesn't mean love is, you know, having the ability to completely forget what someone has done to you. But it means the ability to remember what people have done to you, yet not to act in vengeance based on what they've done to you. And so our lives, our eternal life, literally depends on forgiveness. No one can enter into the kingdom of God whilst holding on to unforgiveness. That's why it, it's a, there's a call to repentance. Change your mind on this issue. You've got so much liberty in God. You can do so much stuff. But if you hold on to unforgiveness, don't expect God to forgive you of your own sin. That's what it says. That's the first reason why we should forgive. God commanded it and our lives depend on it. The second reason is because the lives of the future generation and why the society depends on it. I talked about Jacob and how because of the deceitful act of Laban, he was truly wronged, but he held on to unforgiveness. He held on to it. He could have, at one point in his life, just repented of that and just forgiven Leah and embraced her and her children, but he carried that out and he let the fruits of unforgiveness work its way out until his own children started plotting on how they would kill each other. That's what unforgiveness does. It doesn't just stop at the person carrying it. It goes further into wider society, into the future generations. 
And we see it in our own society today. We see how families are broken apart because father and mother cannot forgive one another. And then divorce enters into the family. And then the children see that split and their, their world comes crumbling before their eyes. And it doesn't just affect the children, it affects the children's children. And we have a society right now that is increasingly wary of marriage. They don't want to get into marriage because I see what they did to my... I, you know, if I got married and I'm going to get divorced and then that will destroy my life and destroy my children's life. And so they walk away from this God-ordained precept, God-ordained practice from the very beginning. It was the first thing that God did when he created man and woman. He brought them together. Why? Because he brought them together for companionship and to create a godly generation. Go check your Bible. That's what he created marriage for, that we will be able to propagate and rear children for a godly generation. And so if we don't enter into marriage as God has ordained it from the very beginning, then we deny society the enjoyment of, of, of companionship and the enjoyment of godly generation, of godly children. And so why the society is affected by unforgiveness? A few weeks ago, myself, myself and my wife, we um, were in um, the United States. And over there, race is a, a big issue in the United States. Um, if you're there for any length of time, you will come across it one way or the other. And we kind of experienced this when we were in a cab uh, with this uh, black American cab driver. Um, and we got to our destination, and instead of saying goodbye, you know, he engaged us in this conversation, and I was like, I, I want to go have some drinks with my cousin. <laughs> but, you know, being from Britain, you, you do the British thing, and you politely listen to what he's got to say. But that's what, that's what bitterness and years of unforgiveness. And by the way, this is not to dismiss what, African-Americans, black Americans have gone through in America. But to understand that the holding on to past sins will keep a society in bondage. There is no way. It will keep any society in bondage. And so there was um, an incident that happened about a few months ago, actually. Um, it, was a, it was a young man... It was a black American, but actually it's from the Caribbean. He was sat in his house eating a bowl of ice cream. He was living in a block of flats, and then a, a policewoman enters into the house because they live in this apartment, and all the doors look alike. She entered to this house thinking it's her house, according to her account, and she sees someone sat in the chair in what was supposed to be her apartment. She pulls out a gun and shoots this guy. Essentially, she kills the guy in his own house. And so... You know, the case had, you know, worldwide attention and also points back to, you know, how, you know, black people um, are treated under the law or with police in America. And this became a, a flashpoint in America where an innocent law-abiding citizen was killed in his own home eating a bowl of ice cream. I mean, the injustice of that <laughs> just get worse than that, really. And so there's a video here of um, uh, an episode within the court that I'll, I'll get played. I 
I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time what you've or how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. But I just, I hope you go to God with all what, all the guilt, all the thing, the bad things you may have done in the past. Each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone could say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself, not even bad for my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did, but I see I I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone, but I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you. Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not gonna say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can, can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um. I mean, that's heavy. That's. You know, many people said, you know, there was a moment of humility. There was, you know, silence in the courtroom. There was. I, I think. I think that is a demonstration of the glory of God in forgiveness. I genuinely think when we see that, that is, there's something about that that is not human. I'm just going to put it that way. There's something about that that is, is of God. That's what I mean by it's the glory of God. It is of God. There's something in that that you just, you just got to give God glory and just say, that is, that is bigger than, than me. That's what forgiveness looks like. But there's a, a specific point in that that I I was um, impressed to make, which is this story garnered national attention. And you wouldn't 
think it was beyond the pale for people to be upset that that young man was killed, that the brother of the young man in the video was killed. There's a justifiable reason to be angry. Or was people itching that if this lady didn't get justice, if, if you know, we felt like justice wasn't served and, and that kind of stuff, you know what, there will be a, a flare-up, there will be a kick-off. But when that young man went and he forgave that lady from his heart, and what reason do strangers have to have a riot? He took away the sting from the entire situation. He removed the tension. He preserved society. There will be no riot from the death of that man. When people remember the death of Botham, all they would think about is the forgiveness of God. Not how can we get our own back and inflict pain on those that have wronged us. That's the power of forgiveness to wider society. And the third point is that the reason for we forgive is because vengeance is the Lord's. It says in scriptures in Deuteronomy 32-35 that vengeance is mine, I will repay. In Genesis 15-21, I'll narrate it quickly for the sake of time. Joseph's brothers come before Joseph after the death of their father Jacob. This is a few years after they lived in Egypt. And they were weary that now that dad is dead, Joseph will take revenge. After all, he was probably acting nice to them because of his father. But now the father's out of the way, they're going to get their comeuppance. And so they all go before Joseph. They send a messenger first, and then they approach Joseph. And they, and they grovel before Joseph. And they say, we are your servants. Have mercy on us. And Joseph looks at that picture. This is many years after he's been with his brother in Egypt. He looks at that and then he weeps again. And I suspect he was weeping because he remembered how he groveled at their feet and begged for mercy. And they didn't give it to him. And Joseph says, am I in the place of God? He says, no, 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 come to me. I will look after you and your children. I will establish you guys in the land. And he says, he spoke kind words to them. That was how Joseph responded to his brothers. But I want to draw your attention to that particular phrase. Am I in the place of God? And Joseph is a wise man. He has a, a very high understanding of God. He understands that perfect justice lies in the hands of God. The things that he suffered, he's not good enough to bring justice. God will exert justice. He will exert vengeance. In Romans 12, Paul speaks on this issue. Now I'll read verses 17 and I'll read 19 until the end. It says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And it goes on to say in 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so Paul is admonishing the church here on how, what our response is when we've been offended, when we've been genuinely offended. And he says, do not repay evil for evil, but repay evil with good. And how do you do that? How I talked about the how we forgive. And Paul gives some examples here. If they're thirsty, give them water. If they are hungry, give them food. 
That is, look upon the ones that have offended you and look at their needs and provide for them. And Paul then says something which is a bit ominous. He says, for by doing these things, you will heap burning coal on his head. That is very peculiar. And I looked at this and I thought, well, surely it's a quicker way of heaping coal on someone's head. <laughs> Find the nearest barbecue pit, get some coal, and then chuck it on their head. It's the point of giving them water and drinks. But why do we do this? Because there's a role for us to play and there's a role for God to play. And God says, vengeance is mine. Don't try to wrestle out of God's hands what is his. It's mine. I know how to do vengeance. You've been around for what, 50 years? Maybe if you're fortunate, 100 years? God has been around since time. Vengeance is mine. I remember back in secondary school, there was a, a lady that wronged me. She made an accusation about me, um, and the teacher took a side. And I was, I was really upset about this. And back then when I was young, when people, when people lied, I was I'll be physically, physically crying and upset. And, and not just lied, but when I was punished for that lie, I think was what really got to me. So I nursed this anger in me, this bitterness, this unforgiveness. And then I think about a couple of years later, she approached me on the playground. And within the earshot of people, I said really bad things to her so that I could bring her down, so that I could get my own back at her. And for a moment, it felt good that I got my own back at her. But after a while, I felt like I'd eaten poison because it didn't sit well with me. And we went through school that way. And then the last year, we went all the way through to our A-levels. And then the last year of A-levels, as we were all living, going to university, I said to her, Things haven't been right between us, and I have said some terrible things to you. And, you know, forgive me for it. And the reason why I had to go back to her and apologize for getting back at her for what she did to me is because I'm rubbish at vengeance. I'm not as skillful in taking revenge. I'm a human being. But God is perfect in love. He's perfect in mercy. He's perfect in forgiveness. He's perfect in vengeance. He's perfect in all his ways. We don't like to think about the perfection of God in vengeance. It's not a happy thought to cast your mind upon. But he's perfect in vengeance. That's why I have a sneaking suspicion that if we got a glimpse of how God perfectly punishes those that have wronged people, we will go on our knees and plead for mercy. Even though they deserve it, we will plead for mercy when God carries out his perfect vengeance. And the reason why is because even at our best, we are imperfect. We cannot comprehend the perfection of God when he does things, even in vengeance. That's why when I tried to carry out vengeance, I only ended up feeling worse for it. Vengeance is God's load. Don't try and carry God's load for him. You'll only end up breaking your own back and making things worse for yourself. Leave that to him. Vengeance is mine. And I will revenge. That's what it says. I will take vengeance. That's why we forgive. Because we say, I trust you to be perfect in doing justice over this wrong that has been done to me. That's why we give it to him. Not because it's meaningless. Not because we treat it flippantly. Not because it wasn't as bad as we think it is. No, it really is bad. 
But there's someone that is better at executing perfect justice than we ever will be. And then the last point that I've got to make on this issue is God's place in forgiveness. Again, we see here where Joseph is in front of, his brothers are in front of him, and they, they beg for his mercy. And then he says, am I in the place of God? Which is another way of saying, am I God? Don't beg me. Don't prostrate yourself before me. And on this issue, some people's problem or issue they have is not so much dealing with the forgiveness. It's not so much giving forgiveness to others. It's rather than accepting forgiveness themselves because they think that I've done something in my life that God can never forgive. Or maybe they think God will forgive and they think God's forgiven me, but I don't think I can forgive myself. Perhaps it's an abortion. And every time one sees a child, they're reminded of, that could have been my child. That would have been the same age as the child that I aborted. Now I know God has forgiven me, but I don't think I can forgive myself. And then this statement comes back to you. Are you God? If God can forgive you, are you saying, are you saying you're more offended over sin than God is over sin? That means you're holier than God. Are you holier than God? Are you in the place of God? If God can forgive you, then who are you not to accept the forgiveness of God? Are you greater than God? You know you're not. But we know someone who is not just in the place of God. He is God. Jesus Christ said to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. We're not kind of alike. We're not distantly related. We are one. He is greater than Joseph who ruled over Egypt. He ruled over the universe. The universe we can see and the universe we can't see. He rules over all of them. He spoke them into being. That's the size of his territory. Jacob loved Joseph. Loved him so much. But God loved Jesus Christ far more than Jacob could ever love. God loves his son Jesus Christ with a perfect love. And when Jesus Christ came to earth, the people that he called his own family said it was crazy. Then afterwards, his own friends and his own allies, people that he walked with for three years, they all fled. And one of them even sold him for 30 pieces of silver, just like they sold Joseph for 20 shekels of silver. And then when Jesus Christ was dragged before the Sanhedrin, they made accusations. He's a blasphemer. He said this. He said that. None of it was true. And he kept his mouth shut. That's one of the things I found very impressive about Jesus Christ is that I can keep my mouth shut over several things, but if you make an accusation that is not true about me, I have to defend myself. I have to. Here we have God of the entire universe being accused by the beings he created, and he kept his mouth shut. And then he was dragged later to the house of Pontius Pilate, and then he was stripped of his clothes. The one that gave human beings dignity was refused dignity. And then he was beaten to an inch of his life. And in his humiliation and in his shame, they told him to march up in the public, in front of everyone, top of a hill, carrying a wooden cross. They hoisted him on top of this cross. And even a, a lifetime career criminal was hurling abuse at the king of glory, the perfect son of God. And then got to the height of it, 
at least for me, where they were saying, he calls himself God. Let him bring himself down from the cross. I, I thought, <laughs> if that was me, that was the point, I would be like, okay, God, you saw I tried. I kept my mouth shut through all the accusations. And now they're saying, I'm not God. It would have been just if Christ said, host of heaven, come down and completely clear out Jerusalem. Because they, they kind of wronged him. But what did he do? Even as his life was ebbing away, even as he was struggling to breathe, even as he felt his heart slow down, what did he say with his final breath? Forgive them. He didn't say fire on them. He said, forgive them. For they didn't know what they do. And on that cross, Christ saw all our sins. He wasn't just talking about those who were shouting at him. Because in his omniscience, he knows you through and through. The day you were born, the house number you lived in, when you got married, what you did in your secret place, Every single act of hypocrisy, every single act of blasphemy, he saw it. This is not a person with a really good memory. This is God. Omniscience. He saw it. And he says, even for that, forgive them. And that's why when we, we come to receive the bread and the, the juice, which Christ says we should do a remembrance, we do it. Not because it's a nice ceremony that makes us feel nice and united as one family. We do it because we are trying to remember and we need to be reminded of this great forgiveness that he won on the cross. We talked about the fact that vengeance is the Lord's. What was God doing on that cross? He was what you deserved. The, the sin that you've committed on other people, the sin that you've committed against him, he was taking it all out in Jesus Christ. He wants a great forgiveness for us. A great forgiveness for us. So I'll, I'll invite the, the team to come and lead us um, in worship as we prepare our hearts to receive of the elements, the bread and the juice. I remember that this isn't just food for fun or because we don't have anything better to do or because it's a nice idea. We do this to remember how Christ's body was crushed, was absolutely crushed under the rod of the Roman and crushed spiritually by the wrath of God. For our sake, we remember how his blood, his lifeblood dripped and flowed out of him. Because it says in Hebrews 9, it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin or there is no forgiveness of sin. That blood had to be spilled that our sins may be forgiven. And that's what we're doing here, remembering that great forgiveness that Christ won for us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you because we will never know the, the debt and the cost of that debt, personally, because you paid it. We thank you for this, Lord. Help us to see this, not to treat it with levity. To see how much it costs you and how freely you gave it to us, undeservedly. And Lord, help us to 
freely give this forgiveness to those that have sinned against us. That we may enter into your presence. That we may truly enter into your embrace, Lord. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.